Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hi, and welcome to the new Top in Tech podcast brought to you by Global Council. My name's Conan Darcy. I am the Senior Practice Lead for Tech, Media and Telecoms. The new monthly podcast which we'll be running will explore the main issues in the politics of technology in London, Brussels and the rest of the European Union. The context here is pretty obvious. There is a tech clash going on. US tech platforms are lambasted in the media and in parliaments across Europe on an almost daily basis now. What we want to do is to use this podcast to lift up the surface a little bit and understand what are the political dynamics behind this? What do we think the policy outcomes might prove to be? How can businesses adapt and position themselves ahead of these developments? And where do we think it might go in the future? So each month, members of the TMT team at Global Council, as well as colleagues who are in our London, Brussels and DC offices, will unpick the most topical issues from the past month. We'll also look ahead to what's coming up in the tech policy landscape in London and Brussels in the month to come. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by two colleagues from within the TMT team at GC. There's Megan Stagman, a senior associate. Megan leads much of our UK political analysis related to the tech sector, most notably including the online safety bill. I'm also delighted to be joined by Max von Thun, who is another senior associate who operates both between our London and Brussels offices, and is most recently sitting in the Brussels office, giving a European Union perspective to the discussion we're having. Max specialises particularly in competition and transatlantic policy. Today, we're going to look at three key issues that we think are dominating the tech agenda over the past month. The first is the European tour of Frances Haugen. She is probably the most famous whistleblower since Edward Snowden. She has the fortune not to have been exiled to Russia. She has been in London this week. She is touring across Europe for the rest of the, uh, the month and into November. We will explore what will her interventions mean and what do the leaked documents that she's taken with her mean for the legislative process both in London and Brussels. The second issue we'll look at is Facebook's rebrand. Why is Facebook interested in the so-called metaverse? And why is Facebook restructuring its brand and its corporation in order to reflect this? Finally, we'll look at the Trade and Tech Council. It met between the EU and the US at the end of last month. This was hailed as a new era in transatlantic tech relations. Did the first meeting really live up to the hype? We'll delve into that and we'll try and think through what will happen next. So let's start with uh, Frances Haugen. Uh, she has been making headlines not just in the past week, but throughout the month since her uh, initial stories were leaked via the Wall Street Journal. She's appeared in, uh, in Europe. She appeared in the Joint Committee uh, on the Online Safety Bill in the UK Parliament earlier this week. Megan, how did you assess uh, Frances Haugen's appearance? Um, what was the main thrust of the evidence that she gave to MPs? So I think given her background, unsurprisingly, she looked at two platforms in particular. So she looked at Facebook and Instagram. And on Facebook, she said that um, there was a real issue with prioritization of profits over user safety. Um, and that hateful content proliferated on the platform and that not enough was being done to combat that. On Instagram, um, the particular concern that she leveled against them was on body image um, and the impact on children of using the platform. In addition to those kind of sp platform specific concerns, um, she also made some interesting arguments that I think politicians will want to take on board as they're drafting the forthcoming legislation. So for example, she made some interventions on private groups, um, which is obviously a key feature of Facebook's platform. She was highly critical of these groups and said that policymakers really need to look at where the line was. Um, if you have a, a huge group with thousands of users, is that really a private group or um, is that then crossing over into a public sphere that needs to be regulated as such? 
Um, I think another interesting intervention was on moderation um, and how it's better tuned for certain languages. So she said that Facebook's moderation uh, was by far best um, in US English. Other languages was far worse um, and even UK English was perhaps um, inferior. So I think that's something that policymakers will be certainly looking into further as they're drafting and as they undergo further um, committee sessions. So as we know, the UK's legislation here, the online safety bill, is not just focused on Facebook and Instagram. It will cover all types of uh, social media uh, content sharing platforms and much beyond. But her evidence has focused almost exclusively on Facebook and the group of companies that Facebook controls. Um, where do you think of those some of those issues you've you've mentioned already, but more broadly, do you think there were specific issues that resonated particularly with parliamentarians? I would say that she validated certain provisions that are already in the draft legislation. So policymakers will obviously be happy about that. For example, she applauded um, efforts to make platforms do risk assessments. Um, and that's already drafted into the bill that's currently um, going to be introduced into Parliament. Um, however, she also brought up um, some interesting issues, for example, around virality, which is something that Damien Collins, um, the chair of the Online Safety Bill Committee, um, is very interested in. Um, she said that there should be certain friction measures to stop content from going prolific on the platform. For example, it could only be shareable up to twice or maybe that you would have to access the links before sharing them. Um, and as I say, Damien Collins has already asked other witnesses about this issue. So I think it's possible that that will feature in um, the committee's final report of recommendations. So it's that sort of issue around whether you forward something on, whether you can retweet, whether you can share with all your followers. It's that that type of issue. How quickly does content move from one person to hundreds, thousands, potentially even millions? So if she satisfied parliamentarians in reinforcing some of their their critiques of online platforms were there areas where perhaps she didn't or even contradicted what mps have been arguing for i think probably the main issue that will have disappointed them was her view on anonymity um, we've seen a lot of focus on this in parliament recently um, particularly um, in the backlash following the murder of uh, David Amos, um, Marc Francois and others uh, have been calling for what they call David's Law, um, which would see an end to anonymity on social media. Similarly, the Secretary of State, uh, Nadine Doris, seemed to suggest that she might be in favour of uh, tougher restrictions on anonymity as well, not least because she's been subject of um, online abuse uh, from anonymous accounts herself. But um, Frances Haugen didn't really validate this approach. She said that there would be incremental value in requiring real names, not least because people can still use VPNs to access accounts anyway. So um, I think that will certainly be something that the committee will have to take on board. So to draw those two points together, Haugen's hypothesis is that it doesn't matter so much the source of the harmful content it matters more the ability of that content to spread quickly uh, to a vast number of people. So, Max, this obviously isn't a UK-only issue. Uh, all sorts of places around the world are looking to regulate social media and content sharing companies online. And um, from uh, the perspective of Global Council's Brussels office, um, what have we seen there in the reaction to the Facebook leaks? Sure. So, I mean, I think to start with, unsurprisingly, the reaction has been very negative, very critical, given uh, the content of what was in Haugen's uh, revelations. Um, I think there's been a lot of anger about some of the practices she's revealed around, uh, you know, amplification of misinformation or, uh, you know, young people's body image online. Uh, I think, again, not so much surprise because a lot of these issues have been known for a long time. Uh, Facebook in particular don't really have the best reputation in, in Brussels and indeed in, in sort of many other places. Um, and so it's in many ways, it's sort of reinforced existing uh, perceptions. Um, I think one of the key arguments that have kind of policymakers have made in response to the leaks is that 
you know, they demonstrate uh, the failure of self-regulation of, of social media, of the ability of platforms like like uh, Facebook to keep their own houses in order, uh, and the need for kind of regulation to solve these issues. Um, so you talked about the online safety bill in the UK. Uh, the European kind of flagship initiative in this area is the Digital Services Act, um, which is the European Commission's kind of main proposal to, to regulate how platforms deal with illegal content. Um, and so we've seen a lot of statements from leading EU policymakers like, uh, you know, the Internal Market Commissioner Thierry Breton um, or the Vice President Vera Jourova on, uh, you know, the need, the, the sort of importance of the DSA uh, in tackling this problem and sort of Europe's leadership in, in, in getting to the bottom of it. Um, I think it's also, if you look at the Parliament, uh, the reaction has been, been slightly more focused on Facebook's business model and the way that um, kind of Haugen's revelations uh, demonstrate the harm that that causes. Um, and I think in, in, to a large extent that reflects uh, efforts undergoing in the Parliament, which is currently uh, examining the, the DSA to, for example, strengthen its provisions on uh, limiting targeted advertising and the role of, of algorithms in uh, kind of creating recommendations for users. There's been a, a push to kind of limit the, the, the role of those tools um, and in a kind of attempt to, again, use these leaks uh, as kind of evidence for doing so. So in some ways, the Francis Haugen revelations and leaks have been a gift to politicians on both sides of the channel. It, it has reinforced for them the case for political intervention in this space, which when you are the MP, MEP or committee uh, responsible for doing so uh, is a handy thing to happen when you're in the midst of a legislative process. Can we just spend a second or two, Max, though? Obviously, the, the, there are some nuances here. The online safety bill is not the same as the Digital Services Act. There's lots of similarities, but there are important differences. Has, have the differences between the two affected some of the interpretation of Haugen and the debate that they are having? Yeah, I, I think that's true to an extent. I mean, again, worth re-emphasizing that, that in general, the response does look quite similar. You know, a lot of criticism of Facebook for what they've been doing and, and an argument that kind of more regulation is needed either through the, the Online Safety Bill or the Digital Services Act. Um, but I think there is a key difference, which, which ultimately reflects differences in the two proposals. Um, so whereas, as I mentioned earlier, the, the DSA is... Um, kind of exclusively targeted at how platforms deal with illegal content. The online safety bill uh, does also include provisions on how platforms deal with harmful content. And that has led then to, to a difference in how uh, politicians, you know, in the EU and the UK have responded to it, given, you know, ultimately most of what Haugen has been talking about, uh, be it, you know, how Instagram makes uh, young girls feel about their body image or, uh, you know, again, how, how uh, Facebook amplifies kind of viral misinformation. That's more harmful rather than illegal content. It's not terrorist content. It's not child sexual abuse content. Uh, and so I think the response in the UK has been more focused on how those tools to tackle harmful content in the online safety bill uh, could be strengthened to, to deal with these issues. So Megan talked about, for example, uh, a push from some policymakers to remove, you know, remove online anonymity. Uh, there have also been calls from some UK policymakers like the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, uh, to make, to sort of introduce criminal uh, liability for business, ex for executives of social media companies for this content. That's something that's in the online safety bill, but currently, as currently phrased, would only be kind of implemented if existing, kind of existing tools didn't work. Um, whereas again, in Europe, it's been more, the debate has been more about the kind of general need for regulation uh, on these platforms and some of those kind of business model uh, issues I was talking about earlier, like cracking down on on advertising and targeted profiling. Thanks, Max. I, it, it does create a curious dynamic, particularly in Brussels, whereby Haugen's revelations are often in areas that there is a consensus politically in Brussels not to intervene. So body image, misinformation, these sorts of issues are not dealt with directly by the Digital Services Act. So her revelations are almost sort of talking across purposes from what MEPs and member states are negotiating on the legislation itself. Turning back, Megan, to the online safety bill, is it a similar story? Has it changed the terms of the debate or has it merely, merely reinforced what we already knew? 
I think we can give a quite short answer to that, which is that it's very much the same as what Max said previously. Fundamentally, no. Um, it's the same issues that people have been discussing for quite a long time, but this just provides evidence for policymakers to go ahead and actually enact those in legislation. So can we see any changes coming off the back of Haugen's intervention? I think it's quite unlikely that there's going to be anything dramatically new. However, certain provisions that were already in there might be expanded. So for one example, um, transparency is already a key principle that uh, policymakers were keen to instill in the legislation. Um, however, Haugen's uh, testimony to the fact that Facebook was being misleading about its hate speech reporting, for example, or that the effective algorithms needs to be <clears throat> given greater transparency, um, there needs to be kind of segmented data on how this affects different groups of users. All of that sort of stuff might crop up um, and become something that's required of companies. Um, interestingly, she also said on the transparency front that Google and Twitter were superior in this regard because they publish some of their search metrics, which perhaps something isn't something that um, most companies normally do. So could be something that we see going forward. Um, final thing is maybe on the need to carry out more research. Um, so at the moment, I think a lot of platforms already do research internally, um, but increasingly there are calls to disseminate this, if not with the public, then at least with uh, key experts, with regulators and with government officials. Um, and this is an argument that we're seeing crop up in quite a lot of the civil society conversations that are happening on the sidelines. So, for example, last night um, there was an event which where the Cyber Policy Centre was telling Ofcom's director of online safety policy that um, there needed to be more sharing of research and platforms are already doing this, but they're just not sharing it sufficiently. OK, thanks. So, I mean, yes, there will be changes, but it will probably be additive to what is already in the terms of the bill itself, rather than something fundamentally uh, new. That may disappoint uh, people who've been following the story closely, in particular those in the media who may be expecting uh, more, given some of the public comments that have been made in the wake of Haugen's revelations. Max, can we just finish one quick question here. Uh, Haugen's been to the UK. Uh, we know she's going to be at the Web Summit in Lisbon next week. Uh, I understand she might also be appearing uh, before other parliaments across Europe. Do you have any details of when that will be? Yeah, that's right. So as part of her uh, whistle-stop tour of Europe, she will be in Brussels from November the 7th to the 9th. Um, I think the main kind of headline appearance there uh, is she'll be speaking before the Internal Markets Committee in the European Parliament uh, on the 8th of November. Uh, the IMCO Committee is the lead committee on the Digital Services Act. Um, so I think that will be a quite a significant moment. Uh, and then she's also scheduled to appear uh, in Paris um, before the Parliament there on the 10th of November uh, and is, is also meant to be visiting Germany at some point, although that isn't confirmed yet. So yeah, quite a few, quite a few more visits to come for her. Great. So the, the reputational implications for not just Facebook, but the broader social media sector uh, are not going to end anytime soon. We will see a cacophony of noise across Europe over the coming weeks. Looking, uh, looking to our second issue, which again is quite linked, um, Facebook has indicated over the past week that is looking to uh, rebrand uh, the company, potentially restructuring uh, how its suite of products and apps um, are owned, whether there might be some form of holding company at the top, potentially on the lines that Alphabet and Google have done, um, in order to make space for a new focus that moves beyond the core three apps, which are Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook itself, into something that is called the metaverse. It sounds uh, somewhat sci-fi, but Facebook are not the only company that are pursuing this. There are many others uh, within the tech sector who see this as the future of the internet. So we just want to spend a few minutes here, um, Megan and Max, just to delve a little bit firstly into what is the metaverse all about? What should listeners understand that to mean? And why is Facebook interested in it? And why is Facebook so interested in it that it is prepared to restructure its entire corporation to reflect these priorities. So Megan, can we just start, break down for listeners, this term metaverse, which I suspect very few people understand, 
Uh, can you just, in, in very basic details, tell us what it is? Yeah, of course. So it's a term that's not actually that new, even though it's gained a lot more popularity in the last year or so. Um, it was first coined in the 90s as a sci-fi uh, concept of 3D worlds where avatars might represent real people. Um, and even though it's becoming more popular in the last year or so, there isn't a fixed definition that I can give you um, or a set of attributes that um, belong to it. However, given we're focusing on Facebook, I think it's worth looking at specifically how they understand it. Um, so Zuckerberg has defined the metaverse as a set of virtual spaces where you can create and explore with other people who aren't in the same physical uh, space as you. What that means in practice, in terms of technology, is probably immersive technologies, so virtual reality, augmented reality, although this isn't um, exclusively what it's about. And I think in terms of how we might see this seeping into everyday behaviours, people see that there might be interoperability between the digital and the real worlds. For example, that could be something as simple as Google Maps, or it could be augmented reality overlays, or maybe virtual reality dressing rooms for real stores or gaming. So it refers to a whole suite of different things, but um, I think to answer your question simply, Facebook see it as an extension of their virtual reality and augmented reality functionalities. So it's quite an ambitious undertaking when we consider for a moment that to have an augmented reality uh, that product that is effective in day-to-day -day life implies extremely fast and reliable connections that probably go beyond even what we're talking about with 5G rollout, which as we know is in its infancy. We may be looking to the next stage of connectivity beyond that. So it is a long-term play, um, but it is a long-term play that clearly Facebook has invested itself in delivering. But what I don't quite understand, Max, is what does why, why does this require or what why would this mean that Facebook would need to rebrand or restructure the company are there are there commercial dynamics that we should be thinking about here sure I mean there, there definitely are I think you know firstly and perhaps most obviously there is there is obviously a reputational element to this um you know we were just talking about the Haugen revelations and the negative publicity around that you know before that there was Cambridge Analytica uh so clearly Facebook's kind of public political reputation has taken a bit of a battering over the past few years and so a part of this is really about trying to, to shift away from that but as you say there are also uh it's kind of important commercial considerations driving this uh, and a couple of different ones which 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 i can get into um i mean i think firstly if you look at facebook uh and the other apps it owns like whatsapp and instagram obviously these are uh, hugely popular apps used by billions of people across the world but you know having said that if you look at their kind of long-term growth prospects it isn't necessarily clear uh how strong those look you know facebook user growth is, is is clearly starting to kind of slow down uh you know apps like whatsapp have lots of competition coming from apps like telegram uh similarly with instagram and tiktok um so you know i think what facebook are doing with this with this focus on the metaverse is really trying to shift more towards kind of future business models uh, and innovation and they see they see the metaverse as kind of being their big gamble uh in that space um, I think that parallels, which which you mentioned, Conan, between um, this move and what Google did with Alphabet a couple of years ago, uh, where in a sort of attempt to, I think, disassociate themselves slightly from the search brand, they sort of put Google within the Alphabet brand, and that also includes a whole range of a whole range of companies uh, in sectors including drones and driverless cars. Uh, and so on. So I think there's similarities there, although obviously I think Google didn't quite face the same reputational difficulties that Facebook are now. Um, and then I think there's a third element to this, which is really about, I think, Facebook realizing that it's been, uh, you know, hampered in many ways by its dependence on uh, app stores and operating systems run by, you know, primarily Google and Apple. So I'm talking about iOS and Android. And a good example of this recently was the changes that uh, Apple made to its mobile iOS, which basically limits the ability of third-party apps to, to track users across uh, across their activity on the operating system uh, and therefore limits their ability to kind of collect data that they can use in targeted advertising. That has been quite a big hit to Facebook. It's, it's already started to affect their revenue. And so I think sort of through this rebounding and, and the shift to the, the, the metaverse, I think Facebook 
are ultimately attempting to create a new ecosystem of the future that they control themselves rather than being uh, controlled by other so-called gatekeepers. Right. So in that sense, you could imagine Oculus or v the VR platform that Facebook develops might be, in, at least in Facebook's eyes, the next version of the App Store. So via your Oculus headset, you would have the equivalent of a video conferencing call, but in 3D, you would have gaming, you would have entertainment, you would have social media, and so on and so forth. And it would be Facebook and presumably other competitors who were making similar plays, who would be the ones overseeing that new gatekeeper platform. So is it all about commercial dynamics, Megan? I mean, we've just been talking in depth about Facebook's political problems. So, I mean, can we infer from what Facebook is trying to do here something slightly more geared towards the politicians they are engaging with on a day-to-day -day basis? Yes, definitely, to some extent. Um, Max already touched on this, but I think there's an element of trying to kind of cauterize the wound and shield new product lines of the type that we've just been talking about from the brand damage that has already happened to the original social media company. Um, I think there's also probably an element of political branding where they're trying to show themselves to be innovators rather than incumbent large companies that are caused uh, big causes of harm. Um, so you spoke about kind of being the next big technological thing. And I think that's something that Zuckerberg himself has kind of pushed on. And he suggested that this new metaverse concept is going to be akin to the invention of the internet or mobile phones, and it's going to be a real step change. So I think they see that if they associate themselves with that trend, then uh, policymakers will perhaps see them as a force for good rather than entirely bad. Um, I would add, though, it's not entirely clear about whether this is going to be effective. So as you can probably imagine, quite a lot of politicians, including, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have said, well, I mean, she just outright mocked them and said that this wouldn't fix any of their actual problems. Other people have said that this is quite similar um, to, for example, oil giant BP having had two name changes in the 90s and the 2000s, and that this doesn't, it just kind of obscures the problems rather than actually resolving them. So the jury's out about whether this will be effective, and I suppose... To be fair on Facebook, we'll have to see what the branding is, what the restructuring is before we can definitively say, but quite clearly trying to draw a distinction between Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp on the one hand and the new products and platforms it's trying to develop on the other. Uh, is one potential benefit of that could be a, uh, a lack of or at least a limitation of political contamination between the two. So, well, we'll see if that plays out in practice. And Max, I think there's another there's another interesting element to this. Facebook is announcing it's going to employ, I think it was something like 10,000 people in Europe to work on the metaverse. Do we read anything into this? Sure. I mean, I think the most obvious takeaway with that one is really, you know, uh, as, as Megan was was alluding to with Zuckerberg's quite grandiose language about this being akin to the kind of invention of the internet, um, you know, creating a kind of uh, kind of feasible and successful metaverse will be a big undertaking. Uh, it require a lot of investment, a lot of new expertise. So, you know, ultimately hiring 10,000 people uh, in Europe will help achieve that. Um, but I think looking beyond that, uh, I think it, it reflects to a large extent Facebook's awareness that you know, being perceived at least up until now as a social media company, first and foremost, hasn't been seen as a kind of positive contributor to the European economy or indeed any economy uh, in the same way that more traditional industries and job creators are like manufacturers. Um, and so I think this is also a kind of quite public attempt to, to address that perception uh, and kind of improves reput Facebook's reputational capital with European policymakers, um, particularly at a time where, as we've discussed, uh, there are big legislative initiatives coming down the track that will uh, affect Facebook significantly, like the Digital Services Act. Uh, there's also the Digital Markets Act, which is likely to uh, categorize Facebook as a, as a gatekeeper platform. And so I think uh, they see this kind of announcement of job creation as a way to perhaps kind of improve their negotiating position or their influence over those proposals. Yeah, and I think, I think it sort of, it talks to this neurosis uh, that you find in discussions, particularly on the Brussels uh, end of things, around whether 
the EU and Europe more broadly are taken seriously by large technology platforms when they are taking decisions. There is a sense that it is only under pressure of US policymakers or ahead of the US election that you will see big changes in policy from the platforms. Now, whether that's right or wrong is almost immaterial. It is a sense that those companies have. So an investment of this kind uh, may go some way uh, to uh, exemplifying and symbolizing uh, that Facebook at least are taking uh, Europe a little bit more uh, seriously than perhaps in the past. So we, we, we've talked a lot about Facebook. Um, I would like to broaden out the discussion in our sort of third topic here. Again, it is on the transatlantic theme, which is the dominant one in uh, European tech policy. We've had the launch of the tech, uh, Trade and Tech Council between the EU uh, and the US. Uh, it was billed as a new dawn in EU-US tech relations, which have been scarred over the last decade by a series of disagreements over digital taxation, data protection policy, uh, antitrust investigations by the European Commission, the, the breakdown in uh, data transfer arrangements several times uh, due to court cases between the EU and the US. Uh, it's been one of acrimony and tension. The Trade and Tech Council is billed by some as a step towards resolving some of these issues, or at least having a slightly more conciliatory relationship on which to discuss uh, some of the topics at hand. So we had the first meeting right at the end of the September. And Max, you've been following this very closely. I mean, does what we saw at the meeting live up to the hype as I've just described it? Um, well, I think I'd start by saying that, you know, a lot of the hype around the TTC uh, really reflected, I think, the end of the Trump era, um, you know, particularly Trump's kind of rejection of multilateral and international cooperation and the way the impact that that had on, on EU US relationships relations during his, his presidency. Uh, and so the EU proposed the TTC kind of right after the Biden election victory as a kind of attempt to to re rehabilitate uh, relations right afterwards. Uh, and I so I think a lot of the optimism around it came from the sense of kind of a significant moment. And I think also a sense that despite their differences, uh, the US and the EU do have a lot in common when it comes to a desire to counter China's influence, be that kind of economically or, or geopolitically. Um, so I think there was a lot of the hype kind of came from, from that, but if you look at actually what happened in the meeting itself, I think it's fair to say it didn't quite live up to that hype um, in the sense that, you know, if you look at the statement that came out of it, there were no real kind of major uh, announcements or, or breakthroughs, particularly on those uh, thorny issues you were talking about, such as how to tackle big tech uh, or transferring data between the US and the EU. There wasn't really any progress there. Okay, so it started... It hasn't uh, exactly scintillating, uh, scintillated observers who are watching, but I mean, it is the first meeting after all, and uh, it would be surprising in any sort of trade negotiation of this type that the first meeting would yield huge results. So, I mean, from that slightly more sober perspective, Max, what were the main achievements of the meeting, if any? Well, I think in, in some sense, you can say that the fact that the meeting happened at all was an achievement. So, I mean, despite the, the kind of hype we were talking about and the uh, perhaps uh, kind of overexcited expectations for what it could achieve uh, in the kind of weeks running up to the summit, there were doubts that it would happen. This was because of the announcement of AUKUS, the security alliance between Australia, the U.S., uh, and the UK, which, which, which led to uh, a kind of submarine order, which the Australians were going to make from the French being cancelled um, and ultimately sort of French anger at that decision led to, to, to pressure from the French to cancel the event at all to kind of uh, as a sort of retaliation against that. Um, so I think the fact that it happened despite despite all of that and kind of opposition from a major member state was significant in itself and demonstrated kind of the political will to, to kind of continue with the initiative. Um, and I think beyond that looking at sort of what was agreed at the summit um, I think I would highlight the fact that there were a number of key areas, uh, including export controls, investment screening, uh, AI regulation, and semiconductors. There were a number of 
um, kind of shared priorities and principles that were agreed uh, between the two sides, um, which I think, you know, represent a, a decent start for a first meeting. Okay, so it happened, which is a positive, and there are certain areas where we might see common ground being sketched out in the future. So watch this space. Megan, as we know, the UK uh, is extremely interested in promoting itself as a tech hub post-Brexit. Um, to what extent do you think this process is being watched and observed in London? I think almost certainly it is. Um, I think it probably makes UK policymakers a bit nervous, the fact that there's this level of transatlantic cooperation building that's going on that doesn't involve the UK, especially when the UK is trying to um, spread this global Britain message. Um, the UK has been trying to develop these sorts of partnerships for years. Um, for example, in the wake of Brexit a couple of years ago, Theresa May set up a UK-India tech partnership with Modi. Um, and therefore, I think it probably will be feeling a little bit left out of this. Uh, it's worth noting, though, that they have tried to make their own effort of a, a tech partnership with the US. Uh, so in June of this year, Biden and Johnson announced um, a science and tech partnership, which was attracted far less publicity um, than the EU one. But it did involve things like quantum technologies, 6G, cooperating on digital and technical standards. So I think there is work ongoing, um, but yeah, obviously it's not um, achieved the same amount of publicity as the EU version. So, yeah, so I mean, the UK clearly, clearly will be interested in this, but there is, a, there is that quandary for the government about the extent to which it tries to get involved, even, even off the back of the agreements that are made between the EU and the US. We've got the Brexit context, which we know with ongoing issues around Northern Ireland mean that EU-UK relations are strained, uh, which make it quite difficult politically for the UK to sort of formally annex itself to the, uh, the TTC process. But you know, could we see any, any participation, you know, falling a little bit short of formal participation? Possibly, although I would say it's not just the UK that's going to be reluctant uh, because of Brexit, strained relationships. The EU would probably also be uh, in principle, against the idea of the UK um, exploiting its relationship uh, with the US. However, from a practical stance, I think it's possible that the EU will see value in having the UK join forces with them, particularly given that they're trying to kind of work against China here and having another powerful state join them is obviously helpful to that objective. Um, I think also the UK has strong ambitions in the tech sector, and therefore, if there is any mechanism by which they can um, further that, then they would probably go for it. Um, I would say in practice, that means they might cooperate more with certain working groups than others. So, for example, um, the TTC will be doing work on data policy, but it's fairly unlikely, I would say, that the UK will be involved in that, given that the UK has made a big fuss out of the fact that it's going to diverge from the EU on um, data policy going forward. However, on things like research and cybersecurity, it's possible that they will be much more aligned with the EU and therefore um, cooperation could be more likely. So it might be a case then that the UK is able to engage on a case-by-case -case basis. It's probably more likely that that participation will come towards the end of the process in those subsectors that you mentioned at the TTC, i.e. once the EU and the US have agreed a common set of standards, the UK might also look to adopt those standards as well, but will probably have limited say in shaping the negotiations between the EU and the US uh, during the TTC process itself. Max, um, moving back to the EU perspective, uh, we talked about how the fact that there was limited progress in the first meeting, but we think there could be more progress in the future. Are there specific sectors or subsectors where you think chances might be high for joint standards or frameworks? We've talked a lot already about the areas where we don't think there will be progress, but are there some that you think there could be? I would say we're most likely to see progress in those areas where there's a strong national security component uh, and where there isn't kind of every, any obvious conflict of interest in, in working together. Uh, and I would see, say the two main areas where that kind of theme is strongest are, are in, on investment screening uh, and export controls, which I mentioned uh, earlier. So if you look at uh, the statement that came out of the TTC meeting, 
the language in those two sections was was definitely a lot noticeably more concrete than it was in other sections. There was talk about kind of creating information sharing mechanisms on investment screening and sort of jointly identifying uh, threats. Uh, or when it comes to export controls, potentially having technical consultations on uh, kind of future export control regulation and aligning on the lists of exports which are considered sensitive and so on. So you know, quite not necessarily kind of uh, extremely ambitious, but but kind of very concrete. Uh, initiatives in that space. And, and I think that really reflects the fact that the EU uh, and the US have been moving in quite a similar direction in those areas in the past few years, with, with I think a focus really on kind of Chinese foreign investment uh, and don't really see each other as security threats. Um, and I, I think as you, as you kind of alluded to, you know, it's a lot trickier when it comes to questions of digital regulation, where I think kind of the vision of policymakers in the EU and the US is often quite different. Um, so I think that's reflected in the fact that the language on AI was 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 very high level and non-committal. There, there was a bit of talk about doing some kind of joint research studies on trustworthy AI and so on, but no real agreement to align on things. And I think that largely reflects the fact that, you know, the EU is pushing forward with quite Kind of bold regulatory proposals on 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 AI, whereas there isn't really anything like that in the US. Uh, and things like you know data flows, data privacy, digital competition didn't feature at all. And they they actually uh, are sort of they've been carved out into separate initiatives outside of the TTT the TTC. I think sort of reflecting the acknowledgement that they're very difficult issues that require kind of their own processes to deal with. So to capture that capture some of that, then Max, all the headline grabbing exciting tech regulation tech lash issues that we've been talking about with Francis Haugen we don't expect much to happen within the TTC to align EU and US approaches here it's in the in the slightly less uh, uh, less controversial less headline grabbing areas um, on the industrial side where we could see uh, elements of cooperation I think there's a that the great unsung area of cooperation in tech policy over the last few years has been on 5G, where starting with the US, but spreading to the UK, and then also a number of European countries, Huawei and ZTE, Chinese vendors in this area, uh, were effectively locked out of the market through uh, a, some form of common uh, standards uh, between uh, Europe and the US, albeit uh, pulled together in a slightly convoluted way. Uh, I wonder if there is scope here for a similar dynamic and whether we'll see uh, Chinese vendors targeted by uh, the TTC process in other industrial sectors. But to park that to one side, the story of the moment seems to me to be semiconductors. Um, the US has announced major measures here. The EU is clearly interested in prioritizing this. Do you think there is scope for collaboration within the TTC on semiconductors or is it both sides go in their own way and they'll focus on other things within the TTC? So I think it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag here. Um, you know, I think particularly in the run up to the TTC, there was a lot of talk about semiconductors in the sense that that would be a big, if not kind of the biggest part of, of what was discussed at the first meeting. Um, but I think if you look at what was ultimately agreed, I mean, yeah, you know, while semiconductors were uh, kind of a big chunk of the agreement, the measures that they actually agreed on are, you know, relatively kind of light touch and non-committal. So it's things like transparency measures, kind of information sharing and analysis of um, gaps and vulnerabilities in the supply chain, uh, rather than any kind of major agreement on, for example, joint R&D into the semiconductor sector or joint manufacturing. Um, and I think, you know, one reason for that is um, that actually the French in sort of part of their part of their uh, attempt to uh, kind of push back on the TTC uh, demanded that some of the language on semiconductors be watered down in the final statements. So I think that's one reason for that. But I think there's also kind of deeper structural factor in that, you know, while the EU and the US do have uh, a shared interest in kind of strengthening uh, and making strengthening or sort of building out their semiconductor supply chains and making them more resilient, particularly given the shortages that have been going on over the past year and are, are kind of still ongoing. Um, they also have competing interests in the sense that they're both ultimately fighting for a pie of the global market. You know, the EU recently uh, announced a, tw a kind of goal to have 20% of the global semiconductor market by 2030. Um, 
it's quite, it's quite far behind the US currently. So, you know, the, the US will also be looking at the EU as a competitor. And so I think being reluctant to collaborate too closely, particularly when it comes to manufacturing. Uh, and, you know, both sides are also at the moment trying to woo international chip makers like Intel and TSMC to build uh, factories in their kind of respective regions. And so I think they are competing in that sense as well. So I think that put a kind of natural uh, kind of dampener on the extent to which they could uh, kind of meaningfully collaborate in this area. Right. So I mean, both, both jurisdictions are seized by the importance of this issue. Uh, they're both concerned about the competition with China, but the jury's out on whether they would actually collaborate in this area and actually national interests are likely or at least partially likely to prevail in this sense. So finally, Max, China, we've mentioned it a couple of times now, it's the elephant in the room. Do you think that the areas where the EU and the US are most likely to cooperate correlate with the areas where the Chinese economic challenge in tech is the highest? So absolutely, they do collaborate very closely. So in terms of the areas I was I was talking about that are uh, kind of the focus of, of the agreement from the first summit, you know, investment screening, export controls, AI standards, trade, China is clearly kind of one of the main, if not the implicit target of the kind of initiatives in this space. Um, I mean, China's never explicitly referenced in the statement, but if you look at the language that's used in there, you know, there's talk of human-centered AI uh, and kind of criticism of, for example, social scoring, uh, which is something that's sort of done in China where people are kind of given a score based on their behavior, which then determines whether they can, you know, go on holiday or access a loan. Um, you know, there's criticism of distortive practices by, by non-market economies. I think all of that very much reads like language uh, targeted at China. I think the fact that the kind of TTC wasn't more critical of China directly, I think reflects the fact that uh, the US is generally less hawkish on, uh, sorry, the EU is generally less hawkish than the US on China, which, you know, largely reflects the fact that there's some divergence between some member states who are, you know, more dependent on exports to China or Chinese investment. But nonetheless, um, I think there is a lot of common ground uh, between the US and the EU on you know, as I mentioned earlier, a desire to restrict Chinese investment and companies from sensitive parts of the economy, uh, or to remain com competitive with China in the technologies of the future, or, you know, to provide a kind of liberal alternative to what is seen as China's quite um, kind of top down, invasive use of technology to, to monitor its population. So, so I think China was definitely kind of very much, if you read between the lines, a big part of the TTC agreement. So it's interesting then that so China is clearly one of the motivating factors to bring the EU and the US to the table in, in the TTC. I suppose the question that we'll need to look at as we move forward is whether economic competition with China is sufficient for them to actually come together and forge common standards and agreement where there are potentially diverging interests between the EU and the US on certain issues. One to look out for. And so, Max, just as we are looking out for it, when exactly is the next meeting of the TTC? So it hasn't been confirmed yet. I think most people expect it to happen uh, in spring of next year. So that's uh, during the French presidency of the Council of the EU. Um, but a lot of it will depend on how much progress is made by the various working groups that have set up, been set up under the TTC. And I think they'll, they'll only want to do the next meeting when they actually have some substantial progress to announce. Okay, well, I mean, I suspect this is going to be a regular feature on the podcast. So when uh, when we know more, we'll let listeners know. And I suspect following the next meeting, we will cover this topic in detail to see whether the second meeting has been a little bit more impressive, perhaps, than the first turned out to be. So many thanks to uh, Max Wontoon and Megan Stagman. Uh, very quickly now, what we're going to do is our quick top five on what to look out for in the EU and UK tech worlds over the next month before we meet again to record our next podcast. So the first thing I will uh, throw your way is the Web Summit in Lisbon. This didn't happen last year uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it is Europe's premier tech summit. It attracts executives from Silicon Valley in the US and from China and elsewhere, and the creme de la creme of the EU political class who are involved in EU tech policy. Uh, notable speakers this year are Commissioner Thierry Breton, uh, Melanie Dawes, the CEO of Ofcom, Francis Haugen is there, and as is Nick Clegg, who uh, heads up 
Facebook's international public policy. So we might see slightly contrasting narratives there about uh, the controversies that we've been discussing today. And not least, our very own Lord Mandelson, chairman of GC, will be talking about geopolitics in tech. Uh, the second, uh, second point to look out for is what Max and Megan flagged earlier. The Haugen tour continues the 8th of November in the European Parliament. We believe it will be the 10th of November in the French National Assembly. We're not quite sure when it will be in Berlin, but roughly the similar time. In other uh, developments, uh, on the third one we would look to would be uh, votes in the European Parliament on the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. We talked about the Digital Services Act in some detail earlier, but the Digital Markets Act is the piece of legislation which will bring in gatekeeper-like requirements for large tech platforms. They were scheduled to be voted for on the 8th of November. We understand now that that has been delayed. Uh, we are not quite sure yet when exactly that will be pushed back to, but negotiations will be ongoing in the European Parliament to forge a common agreement on what that legislation should look like. In other areas, uh, we've got the online safety bill. Developments are coming thick and fast. Um, the 4th of November, new Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Support, Nadine Doris, will be before MPs. It will be her first real major appearance as Secretary of State in this area. We'll give her the opportunity to expand on some of the views she outlined on issues like anonymity uh, in a recent uh, media op-ed. That committee will be taking a slightly unusual uh, approach of appearing and holding a session in Brussels on the 8th of November, where they will discuss the element of alignment and lessons learned between the Online Safety Bill and the Digital Services Act. Uh, the final one, just to flag uh, for listeners, on the 17th of November, we have the review of EU competition policy. Uh, this is likely to expand across a lot of different areas, not just exclusively uh, related to tech. However, it is very likely there are elements that will be uh, of relevance to the tech sector, not least around how state aid provisions apply to connectivity, so broadband, 5G, and so on and so forth. So um, as always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to the issues that we have been discussing today, please don't hesitate to get in touch with the Global Council team. You can find our details um, for Megan, Max and myself and the wider TMT team at GC on our website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thanks once again to Megan and Max and thanks to all listeners uh, for tuning in and we'll be back with you next month. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.